It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. I'm very excited about this guest because there are so many things going on in law that we are seeing on every major news channel now that's dealing with what's happening with the Trump administration, what's happening on many, many federal investigations. And the truth of the matter is... That requires a lawyer that we can say is inside the beltway, a lawyer with experience in Washington, D.C., not just a a good trial lawyer in Georgia or from some of the other places that I've had. And today we have one of the best. Karen Pop is an attorney with a very prestigious firm, Sidley Austin, in Washington, D.C., She is the co-leader of the firm's white-collar government litigation and investigations group. She has had the distinction of serving as associate White House counsel under the Clinton administration. She represented public officials in front of congressional hearings and other matters. It is a real special privilege to be able to have Karen here and we're going to talk a little bit as we go through this, our time with T about how we got to know each other. Um, so, Karen, welcome to Law Talk with BJ. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, with your depth of experience, you know, I was saying to you, even as a lawyer, I am watching the news at night, watching the Mueller investigation, watching the indictments, watching the trials, you know, the one we just had with Manafort all these different things, and realizing, even as a lawyer, you know, that is not something that I would necessarily be comfortable jumping into. And yet, this has been part of your practice, among many things that you do. Um, And so I want to take advantage of that, especially going back to this concept of being an associate White House counsel. What really, what is the role of White House counsel um, for the president? Let's start off there. So the, the White House counsel is really the, the in-house counsel to the president and to the White House. And um, you've, you've got the Office of Legal Counsel over the U.S. Department of Justice, which is viewed as the outside counsel. And the White House counsel really serves the role of advising the president not only on, on legal issues, but also policy and political issues. It sort of brings those three topics together into one. And the White House counsel's office actually is quite small. Um, and it, it probably varies from administration to administration, so I can obviously only speak about my experience in the Clinton administration. Um, but we had, um, you know, as I recall, less than 10, I think around eight associate White House counsel. And we uh, sort of divvied up the various agencies within the executive branch to deal with uh, domestic policy issues coming out of those agencies and other issues that those agencies would would generate. And then in addition, if there is any type of investigation, either by a special counsel or Congress, et cetera, uh, then the White House Counsel's Office would be involved in that as well. 
And obviously, during the President Clinton's administration, there were some of those types of investigations. So the big dilemma has been, you know, who does the White House counsel report to in the sense of more recently that the concern or the conversation of that the current president uh, may deem that their conversations were privileged or or that that was the client, that the president's the client versus I've heard other commentary and other opinions that that's not what that role is. So can you shed some light on, you know, what the parameters are as White House counsel in terms of advising the president, which is an individual, very intimate relationship. I mean, they're a real person, not just the government. And yet it is the head of our, you know, our country, the head of our government. That's tri- that's tricky. Right. So I, I'll uh, comment generally about that topic, not anything specific about Absolutely. what's going on currently in Washington. But uh, generally speaking, the White House counsel is is very different from personal counsel to the president. and And so the privilege is different as well. And what I mean by that is, is the White House counsel and the White House counsel's office represents the president of the United States, not the individual person who occupies that office. So during the Clinton administration, for example, um, we represented the president and President Clinton had his own personal counsel uh, to represent him personally on you know, some of the issues uh, that he faced during his administration that were under investigation. The privilege that the White House counsel has with the president is called an executive privilege. And the president owns that privilege, can waive that privilege, uh, just like your client can waive the attorney-client privilege. But the White House counsel's office um, is is not generally perceived as having attorney-client privilege with the person who occupies the office. And, um, and so because... Uh, you, your work for the president as a member of the White House Counsel's Office is for the president, him or herself, as president. Your duties and your privilege um, has to go toward the work of the presidency and not the individual's personal private conduct. Very, that's very helpful. You know, and just for listeners, you know, the privilege, it's one of the special things, attorney-client privilege or an attorney privilege is one of the unique things of why you do go to an attorney. Besides the fact that you may need an advocate, you know, sometimes you just need advice in an atmosphere where you can truly talk confidentially and trust that confidentiality, which is why we call it a privilege. And so I I know a lot of people, when they go see a lawyer sometimes, they hold back because they don't realize, oh, this really is a special relationship. Um, And I can't imagine how it feels to be at that level, knowing that you have this special relationship as a client, and that is the business of our country. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you, if you look back over different administrations where executive privilege has been implicated in whatever issue uh, is under review at that time. You often see the president, uh, and this was certainly true during the the Clinton administration, feeling an enormous amount of pressure to waive that privilege. And if it's waived, either waiver for purposes of of a congressional investigation or a, a DOJ special counsel investigation, 
if it's waived, then obviously, which is true in the private sector with attorney-client privilege between a lawyer and an individual, is that everything related to that topic can be a subject matter waiver, obviously in the private sector. Under executive privilege, depends on the scope of the waiver, but you could find yourself um, having to produce all sorts of documents, emails, et cetera, um, and subject people to having to give testimony that otherwise wouldn't have to if the privilege had been asserted. And because of the, you know, the, the political nature that a president often is involved um, in occupying his or her seat as president, there is an enormous amount of pressure that's put on that president to, to waive that privilege. And we've seen that you know, in different administrations in recent times. Just in terms of your legal career, just shifting slightly, because, I mean, when you were, I think you went to the University of North Carolina School of Law, am I, to think that you would be counsel at the White House. Was that ever in your realm of dreams or thoughts? Or when you were going to law school, do you feel it? Did you know you were heading in this direction? Or You know, when when you're in law school, you're you certainly have lots of hopes and dreams. And mine at the time was... I thought I wanted to get into politics. I thought I wanted to run for public office. I used to say, uh, jokingly, I wanted to be the first female governor of North Carolina. But what happened to me is that, um, and I've often said this to to younger lawyers and law students, that the wonderful thing about a law degree is that it really can open up doors that you never imagined. And what happened to me uh, is that after law school, I clerked on the Fourth Circuit for uh, Judge Sam Irvin. That's the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a federal appellate court. Yep. And then I went to New York City um, and worked um, on Wall Street um, at Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, I think it may be the oldest law firm on Wall Street. Had a wonderful time. Woke up one morning, and I'd been there, you know, more than five years, around five years, and um, decided to go be a federal prosecutor in New York and um, really go into a public service job get some trial experience, had a wonderful time at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, met wonderful people, people such as Mary Jo White, Leslie Caldwell, and others, Beth Wilkinson, who um, uh, started around the same time I did, Andrew Weissman, who also started around the same time that I did. And Loretta Lynch was there. Loretta and I had actually met when we both were in law school. Former Attorney General. Former Attorney General. Um, and so she was already in the office uh, when I arrived. So it was just, it was a fantastic period of time. Other great people I could keep naming, Beryl Howe as chief judge of the district court in D.C. now, Kirby Heller, who works at the Department of Justice, um, et cetera. And so, you know, from there I came to Washington and uh, joined the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice under Walter Dellinger. And... Um, I was, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that's the outside counsel office to the White House. And and then my I did a lot of work in that role with my counterpart in the White House counsel's office um, at the time was Elena Kagan, who's now on the Supreme Court. Wow. And Elena and I did a lot of work together. I basically, uh, she, remember I said earlier how the the White House Counsel's Office will divide up agencies, and Elena had a lot of the Department of Justice um, issues, and um, and I had a lot of those issues that was the White House was dealing with. So she and I worked together. The Brady Act was brand new. Victims' Rights Amendment was was um, a, a big issue. 
President Clinton had a lot of law enforcement initiatives that Rahm Emanuel, who was then the political advisor at the White House, worked on. And so the Office of Legal Counsel provides legal advice to those types of issues. And because I had been a prosecutor in New York, most of the lawyers in the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, do not have a criminal background. They're usually constitutional law scholars. And so I was able to uh, pick up most of those law enforcement issues that the White House was dealing with during that time period. So it was fantastic. And when uh, Elena, at the end of the first term, Elena then took another position in the White House, and I went over and took her slot. So it, you know, as, as that story just reveals, things just fall into place. And as I've said many times, as a lawyer, you never know when doors are going to open. And you've got to have sort of the, um, the guts and the foresight to walk through those doors and to make the most of it. And that's really what's happened in my career. And, and what I love is that these doors have opened, but you have realized that they open for you and a few others that you've discussed, but a whole lot of other wonderful lawyers that are women not so easy to open those doors. And you have actually now founded the Women's White Collar Criminal Defense Association and have grown that to, I think you said it started around eight or nine members to 1,400 women across the country. And the world. And the world. Yes. And, you know, on one hand, some of our listeners say, well, why is that important? And I want you to tell why, and and, and I know how I feel about it, because it's not easy to get in to do the level of work that you are able to do um, and to get the opportunity to do those big cases, to be a part of that. So can you share your insight and what the Women's White Collar Criminal Defense Association is doing? So we, so yeah, so when I, I left the White House uh, and started at Sidley Austin in 99 and started as a partner, my I mentioned Beth Wilkinson earlier that I had met her in the U.S. Attorney's Office in in New York. She also moved to Washington around the same time I did, um, and she joined the Department of Justice. And shortly after I arrived, the Oklahoma City bomb went off, and and um, and Beth ultimately was one of the the lead prosecutors in that uh, case. So about this time she was leaving the department, a few years later I was leaving the White House. She went to Latham as a partner. I came to Sidley, and. Um, and we had, as I indicated earlier, we, we had been in the government at a time where there was all these wonderful powerhouse women in leadership roles. And we had a pretty tight group of women, had dinners regularly in Washington, et cetera, uh, many of whom I just mentioned previously, but also others. So when Beth and I came out of the government and went into our respective firms and we wanted to do white collar, and this was this is pre-Enron, so this is pre the explosion of the white-collar work that exists today. We sort of looked around, and we were wondering where all the women were. And we went to that year's ABA white-collar conference, and um, and there were not a lot of women there, and certainly few, if any, women serving on the panels at that conference that year. And we basically, there were about 10 of us that decided we should sort of start getting together. We had our first lunch later that year, I think it was in December of 99, and, and we invited a, a guest speaker, and it was the sitting t- Attorney General Janet Reno that came in and spoke. 
at our lunch. And that sort of launched this Women's White Collar Defense Association. And we've grown over the years. And it's really a, a group that went from 10 in D.C. to 34, 33 other uh, chapters throughout the world, uh, for more than 1,400 members. And what 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 we uh, sort of our objective is to really bring more diversity to the practice of white collar law and white collar law broadly defined. I mean, it's not just criminal; it's also civil enforcement, compliance, and et cetera. And we've been very successful, um, I think, in having women collaborate with each other. Having, I mean, male lawyers uh, refer business to to women. I mean, a number of my partners at Sidley Austin. Uh, refer business to the women in the WWCDA. And uh, it just to bring more of an awareness that there are a lot of women who practice in this in this area, which has been historically a male-dominated practice. And I would also think that it would help and that the, the clients get better advice, especially with dealing with the issues as this country shifts, um, the Me Too movement, other things that have been happening where women want to be heard and be more involved. And yet, if the hierarchy of whatever organization, the the company itself and the attorneys who represent them, if they aren't connected to an understanding of a woman's point of view, you're not doing a good job. So it really, you know, it really affects more than just this area of law, in my opinion, at least. Um, and so by you organizing in this way and, and the other women who put this together, the net gets wider in terms of women getting compensated and recognized for being able to do the highest level of work that there is. Well, there certainly is, you know, a lot of within the organization referring business and and in the practice of law, um, you know, your book of business is very important when it comes time to understand, you know, pay and that sort of thing. But you're, you know, you're you're right that uh, the 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 women in this practice area um, are qualified to do a lot of type of work, including internal investigation work and defending individuals uh, that are part of or targets of that internal investigation work. And the WWCDA, I mean, we, we, we have events, we, we have both local events at the various chapters, and we recently had an event in our New York chapter where a number of the women doing some of these Me Too matters, such as the U.S. Olympic matter and, and et cetera, um, you know, spoke at that event. It was just fantastic. Speaking of matters, we've kind of I'm going to go into one that you just recently very publicly um, represented and resolved, and and understanding that we can't always talk about everything about our clients. I go through this too with uh, my own that they're things, but you just have been representing Urban Meyer, the coach at Ohio State, on the most recent investigation. What can you share with our listeners? about that investigation and how it's been resolved now with the, I believe, a three-game suspension. So Coach Meyer, um, for those of you who have been following the press, uh, will know that um, on August 1st uh, of this year was suspended, and the university fairly quickly thereafter launched an internal investigation, hired Deba Voice and Plimpton, led by Mary Jo White, to investigate um, allegations related to Coach Meyer's knowledge, uh, alleged knowledge of any domestic violence issues related to a particular assistant coach on his staff, Zach Smith. 
and also was investigating whether or not uh, Coach Meyer was truthful uh, at a press conference that was held on July 24th, uh, referred to as Big Ten Media Days press conference. Debevoise did the investigation very quickly. They were given two weeks, and they, they met their deadline. And I'm pleased to say that their conclusions were that Coach Meyer would have terminated Zach Smith at the time had he known about domestic violence. Um, they concluded he did not know. He had not learned of any domestic violence. Uh, they also concluded that he did not lie um, at a press conference. So we were very pleased with those results that were determined by the Debevoy's firm. They did, however, learn about additional work-related issues that Zach Smith, uh, the assistant coach, uh, had engaged in, some of which uh, Coach Meyer knew about, much of which he did not know about. And based on those work-related issues, uh, the university uh, and the way Coach Meyer had, had handled them, university concluded that, that that would be the basis of the three-game suspension. And Coach Meyer cert- certainly uh, takes ownership um, over that. Uh, but like I said, was he, as well as us, were very pleased that the Debevoise firm reached the conclusions they did with regard to the, to the two issues that the Debevoise firm was uh, retained to investigate. Do you think or feel like that because there was this action, that there was a, these suspensions, that that is an alert, another reminder to universities, athletic institutions, um, coaches about their role um, and things that perhaps when they started in the industry, they didn't imagine these things. But, you know, it is a maze of concerns when you're dealing with young people and particularly at, in a college setting. Do you feel like what's happened in his case is going to have some collateral effect or some changes with how athletic divisions deal with these kind of issues? You know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, about the impact that the Coach Meyer matter will have on that. I, I certainly know in my practice in general, um, I, I have a specialty in compliance, and I know that there is um, a lot of organizations out there, whether it's profit, nonprofit, universities, Wall Street, um, that is paying a lot more attention to having appropriate compliance programs in place, appropriate training um, of their senior people who are um, have to make sure that they do the right thing when matters come come to their attention. I do think that the uh, that universities certainly with uh, in the years, the, you know, previous years where we've seen more universities come into the focus of the media as to issues going on on campus, that you are seeing a lot more of a focus on compliance. And I personally think that, um, and this is something I learned even working for the government, uh, that p- compliance is a very good thing. And um, and it should be something that organizations are focused on, the individuals in those organizations are focused on. And going back to Coach Meyer, you know, Coach Meyer, his record um, in his fights against uh, domestic violence and also uh, in support of Title IX, the work that he's done with his staff and his players are exemplary. And that's something else that uh, Mary Jo White and uh, Deb Avoyes found in their report. Uh, they commended him uh, for the work he's done in that, that space. And so we are seeing uh, not only from coaches like Coach Meyer on campuses, but, you know, others throughout the university systems, 
a you know a, an emphasis and a support in that area. Of more compliance. vigilance. Yes. More vigilance. Yes. And and if you think about it, of all the issues that have been coming out, um, whether they're companies with regards to alleged sexual misconduct, things such as here, what happened in the Nasser case, I think there you know there is this realization across the board that these things can have to be paid attention to and that the business isn't just the business you're in. The business of sport is just not playing football or basketball or soccer or tennis, but that especially in the college setting, the well-being of the students and, and, and the same things goes in a corporate setting. And I do, do you feel like that is a shift that you have seen in your compliance practice over the years, a more of an awareness and that, that there's value to having these standards set. You know, I, I certainly see that that there has been more of an emphasis in corporate America over time. Um, I, you know, post Enron, post Sarbanes-Oxley, I mean, we, we've seen a, a shift uh, in the positive direction. Um, it's something, again, that that Janet Reno was focused on when she was attorney general. And when you look at the history of compliance, it's a fascinating topic. I'm actually teaching right now a class at Duke Law School on compliance. Um, and I've just, uh, in our in our first class, I, I walked the class through the, the history of compliance. It's a fascinating topic. I may need to go to that class. I'm going to think we may have online attendance. But I but I do think that it, it is a good thing that, uh, and and like I said, we're seeing it both in corporate America and in the nonprofits and in the university setting. I will say, though, that going back to sports, uh, and I am a daughter of a college and NFL football coach, um, and my brother uh, is also in football. He is the general manager of the Toronto Argonauts. And so I've, I've been, I was raised in a sports setting, and I am around that atmosphere. And I will say that I, I have you know, always thought and have, have seen many individuals in sports be very, even before the compliance movement of the last 20 or 30 years, I, 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 I already saw that. And I certainly, and Coach Meyer is an example of that, it, it did not take this issue. I mean, he was already there. And I've seen other people like my brother and my dad and others that already saw sports, not only as a, as a sport, but also a vehicle to, to, raise young people. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a former college athlete. Um, I think that you have, you, you learn a lot about life and playing sports. And there are a lot of people out there, coaches and administrators who believe that and use sports to help develop real, well-rounded young people uh, to be very top giving back to society adults. And so, you know, that doesn't mean uh, that we're not seeing, you know, corporate scandals, sports scandals, et cetera, and that we can learn from them? Of course we can. Um, and this is this is part of the growth of compliance. And like I said, I, I think it is a good thing. Uh, but it doesn't always mean that it was that those institutions were bad before. It's just there's always room for improvement. And that's certainly true of life in general, but certainly true in the compliance space. And so as we get near the end here of our conversation, I'm realizing, as I always do, I have picked the perfect tea for us to enjoy <laughs> um, because I've been sipping on some fennel and cardamom tea. And the reason why I picked this tea for you, Karen, 
is because fennel in particular, the healing and spiritual properties of it, is for strength and energy. And certainly with the career you have had, it is incredible what you've been doing, what you have done, the places that you have had impact. And I could wish you more strength and energy in your practice. And um, thank you for this conversation over tea. Well, thank you so much. This has just been wonderful, and the tea has been delicious. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.